0: We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, El Monte. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, El Mani. 1 Samuel chapter 22. And I, I'm going to ask you guys for a prayer request. Um, I pray that if it's the Lord's will that I'll be able to do like two chapters at a time instead of just one Um, because man it's going to take us forever to go through the Bible and I really want to get through this and so I know the Lord can give us that grace and help us but today we have a, a really awesome chapter and it's hard to outline you know I like to put handles on things I like to outline things but Uh, In today's chapter, we're going to see one thing for sure, and that is that there is going to be a contrast between David and Saul. David's leadership and Saul's leadership. And not only that, I think that we see it right off the bat, you guys, that David is a typology, he's a picture of Jesus, and Saul is a picture of the devil. And, you know, there's a good dividing line, I think, that maybe we can start off with right there, you know, because there's only two... You know, people. You can serve, so to speak, two ways. You can go either with the Lord or, or with Lucifer. You know, either with the light or with the darkness. Either you're you're a saint or you're an ain't. And for us, I think it's important, man, to really, just really, just know that, you know, that's where we need to go. We need to follow Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And just man, guard yourself against the ways of the enemy, the lies of the enemy, the mentality of the enemy. We know that he's crafty, he's cunning. Uh, We know that um, the Bible says he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that more abundantly. And so notice today as we go through our study, just different nuances between these two types of leadership. And then as we go through, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would give some specifics to all of us here, because I think there's just so many areas of our life that we need to surrender. And we need to learn God's word. We need to love it and then live it. Because look what we read here in 1 Samuel 22. It says in verse 1, And then David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And so if you remember, David now flees from the Philistines. He goes from Gath. To the cave of Adullam. He's actually fleeing Saul, but for whatever strange reason he stopped there in the Philistines and you know they knew who he was and so he pretended to be mad and then so now we find he goes to the cave of Adullam. Now Adullam literally means refuge. And as these caves here are consecrated by their creator, David would find refuge. He would find sanctuary in this place. Apparently this was a well-known place in Judah about 10 miles from Gath And about 15 miles from Bethlehem, David's hometown. Now we know he couldn't go to his own house. He couldn't go to the palace. He couldn't go to Samuel. He couldn't go to Jonathan. He couldn't go to the house of the Lord. He couldn't go really now. He knows to the ungodly. And so he's got nowhere else to go but this humble cave. And here he finds a refuge. And so, you know, if you can visualize yourself just for a second there, you know, living, uh, running to, you know, a cave. That's where the king now is You know, he's the anointed king. He hasn't been appointed yet, but, you know, it's a crazy place. And, you know, visualize yourself, you know, living there underneath the freeway there. You know, I know I've gone with the ride-alongs with the Elmonte Police Department. A lot of times they have to go down there to the places where these homeless people live. You know, they're under the bridge. In one sense, that's kind of like what David's at now, where David is. You know, he, he's homeless, and he's living <laughs> in a cave. You know, if you read Psalm 57, Psalm 142, these are Psalms that he wrote that it says when he was in the cave. And I don't know how you're doing today. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you find yourself going through difficulties in life, you know. And it's it's just cool to be able to go through those Psalms and to find out that this man, that, you know, David, his name means beloved of the Lord, that even the beloved of the Lord can go through some very difficult times in life. But as we're going to see in David, you know, it's just a matter of time. You watch what God does. The way that he puts those pieces of the puzzle back together again, the way he puts your life back together again, it's just an amazing thing. But wait on the Lord. Don't lose heart. Continue to wait on the Lord with eager expectation, great anticipation. Know that he's worthy of that wait. And what you find is as you you know, flee to the cave of Adullam, it is a cave of refuge. And God will do a work there, even in the cave. Because look what happens. It says right there, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men who were with him. And so David goes to the cave, and you know, part of you is thinking, well, nothing good can happen, you know, in this type of setting. But it's just so beautiful to see now that his family, who at one time did not even believe in him, that his family now comes to him. You know, and we don't know for sure, maybe they feared their lives, you know, but I think if you think about it, if they really wanted to, they could have stayed in Israel and sided with Saul. But here we see they came to David, David's father, who at one time thought so little of David that he didn't even consider him as a candidate to be anointed and appointed by God. And then his brothers, who at one time despised him, thought nothing of him. Here we see they come to him. And undoubtedly they become part of David's mighty men. You know, and, and, and I know there are family issues here. There's always family issues, you know, and, and there you are in the cave of Adullam and, and you're wondering, man, what good can God do here? But when you stay focused on the Lord, man, he's going to begin to work, I believe, in every single area of your life. And even those family members and people that you thought maybe you would never reconcile with. God begins to soften your heart. God begins to soften their heart. And before you know it, man, because you're following the Lord, God begins to bring reconciliation. You know, Not only does his family come, we also see these uh, this motley crew <laughs> begin to come together. I mean, think about it, man. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented, they also gathered to him, you know? <laughs> I mean, imagine if those were your qualifications, you know, for leadership, man. Are you in distress or in debt or discontented? Okay, if you are, then you can come to our team, you know. And, and, and that's what David's guys are. That's where they are. That's how they come. And yet, you know, the bottom line is how often this is the case. The reality of it is that not many mighty, not many noble, not many, you know, intellectuals and rich and all that kind of stuff. All these guys who, you know, you think, well, they would, you know, be the candidates to lead, you know, you know God's kingdom, so to speak. And God just takes the simple. God takes these guys who don't even know how to read. And he makes them teachers of the Bible, God takes these guys who thought that their, their brains were, you know, through all the drugs they had used all their life, they didn't even think they, you know, had half a brain. It was missing that someone had blown their brains out. That's Mike McIntosh. And you just go down the line, Raul Reese and Steve Mace and all these guys, you know, that, that God has used in such a tremendous way. And, and you realize that, you know, that's kind of the way the Lord works. So God takes these guys that are so simple And yet shows himself strong through their lives. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, it brings me hope. You know, it should bring you hope too. It doesn't matter, you know, how smart you are, how much money you are, how strong you are physically or whatever it is that's going on. You know, if you just, if we just surrender our lives to the Lord... If we just come to Jesus, there he is in the cave of Adullam. And even though we're distressed and even though we're discontented and we're in debt, and all those things are true spiritually, that's who we are spiritually. Lord, I want more. I'm not content. Lord, I know who I am in my own righteousness. The bottom line is I'm a wicked man. Lord, I know it's crazy. I'm afraid without you. I can't make it without you. My family's not going to make it without you. My wife's not going to make it without you. My kids aren't going to make it without you. I have nowhere else to go. But you come to the Lord. That's what we got to do, just like these guys did. And what you find is that God took these guys. There were 400 in the beginning. Eventually it came to 600. And he made them mighty men of valor. He made them mighty men of heroic courage. They didn't bring nothing to the table except for, I think, a willing heart. And they knew who they were supposed to follow. And that's where we gather hope. You see, these guys were there in Israel and Saul had not led them to victory. You know, Jonathan's words rang true as he said in 1 Samuel 14, 29, My father has troubled the land. And that's what the devil has done. The, the, my father, that's Saul, he has troubled the land. And so these guys, they, they go to, to David. Saul wasn't a godly leader. The bottom line is, if our leaders are not godly leaders, godly leaders, I don't care who it is, even if they're moral leaders, you know, they have to be godly leaders. If they're not godly leaders, then we won't be a godly nation. We will become what our leaders are. We will become them. That's what happens to churches. That's what happens to countries like, you know, priests, like people. And so what we find right here is that David was not uh, there yet. Saul was a godly, ungodly leader. The land was in turmoil, conflict, and chaos, and people were worried. They were hurting financially, and they definitely were not content in life. And so what ends up happening is they're gathering around the anointed leader of the Lord, the one that the Lord had appointed. And David Guzik made another good point right here. He says, these all came to David when he was down and out, hunted and despised. Now that's interesting. You know, once David came to the throne, there were a lot of people who wanted to be around him. But the glory of these 400 is that they came to David while he was in the cave. And I thought that was interesting. You know, A.W. Tozer said, you don't, you don't you don't you know, support you don't follow any man until you see the oil on his forehead. And so they gathered around him, they supported him, they were drawn there, I believe, by the Spirit of God, and what ends up happening according to first Samuel 23, 13, that these four hundred men become six hundred. And this is a beautiful truth in history, and I think we see it, and we're like, wow, that's cool, but I also think it's a beautiful truth in typology. You guys, we are called now on earth to Jesus. You know, he's not the king yet. He's kind of like in the cave of Adullam, so to speak, you know. He's been anointed already and he's already won the victory, but he hasn't yet ascended to the throne. And so we kind of have this, you know, heart, and I pray that you do, that we run to the Lord and we say, here we are, Lord, we're your servants on earth to serve you. As George MacDonald said, David here is a type of Christ in his present rejection, calling the downhearted to himself for salvation. In the world, these men were misfits, but under David, they became mighty men of valor. And so we're called now on earth to serve him. But what's going to happen with these mighty men? As they're there with David on the run for 10 years, what's going to happen when David becomes king? Oh, well, when David becomes king, they will rule with him, Right? You see, because we're called now on earth to serve him, but we will be crowned there in the coming kingdom to reign with him. Just like these guys. It's an amazing thing. Alan Redpath said, just as in David's day, there is a king in exile who is gathering around him a company of people who are in distress and debt and discontented. He is training, and I like that. He's training us. You know, and we do have to have that mentality. God's training us and preparing us. For the day when he shall come to reign, and we will reign with him. And I think a lot of times we lose sight of really what the Bible teaches because we think, well, once I become a, you know, I get my glorified body and I go there in the kingdom, everything's going to kind of like be figured out. They don't realize, we don't realize that a lot of what we're going to be doing in the kingdom is going to be based upon what we're doing now. That God is molding us now. That God is preparing us now. Just like he did with these guys here. And that's why it's important for us to understand that. We read in verse 2 that all these guys came to him. And so, notice what it says there in verse 2. He became captain over them. You know, and I like the way it's worded. I love the way the Lord just raised him up. You know, David didn't look for it. David didn't push for it. It just happened. How? By the hand of the Lord. It's also worthwhile to note that they didn't come and become some type of mob or, you know, rebellious guys. They were willing to be led by their captain. And so they could see, you know, they could sense David's love. And I think we can as well. Because notice what we read next in verse 3. It says, And then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. And so he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all that time that David was in the stronghold. You know, and if you wanted to, you could probably just read by that and maybe not get anything out of it, um, but I don't think it should be taken lightly the way that david took care of his parents the way he honored his parents the way he was willing and if you were to look at a map you would see he had to travel you know at least 300 miles he had to go you know across the sea to bring his family to moab right i mean just the way he was willing to ensure their safety and their security and according to genesis 19 uh, 36, the Moabites were descendants of Lot and they weren't always friendly with the Israelites. But we know that David's grand, great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite. And so undoubtedly, this kind of helped David gain their support, right? He says, here, can I leave my parents with you and will you take care of them? You know, will you keep them safe? You know, and this is important for us. We can't just, you know, speed by this. Some of you here, you know, you wish you had parents to take care of. Some of us here, we have parents and we're not taking care of them the way that we should. I remember, you know, Miss Josie, Margie's mom, the way that her and Dick took care of her. That's the way we're, we're supposed to do that with our parents. Over the years, I've seen that this is an issue. And it's a tough issue, but it's one we have to face just as we take care of our children and we realize the importance of that. There comes a time when we have to rise up to the responsibility of taking care of our parents. That's what honoring our parents, the fifth commandment, really means. You know, if it's, it's a serious offense, because if we don't, First Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, speaking of his parents, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and worth than an unbeliever. And so, you know, a lot of times this becomes a real challenging thing. And I'm just going to get just a little, little, little bit more practical. The reason why some, you know, sons don't take care of their parents is because of their wives. And the reason why some wives don't take care of their parents is because of their husbands. It's that in-law, out-law thing, Right? And you know what, you guys? We have to be so careful. Yes, when we get married, we leave our father and mother, and we're joined to our wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And yes, there needs to be those healthy boundaries. But whatever you do, don't be one of those daughters-in-laws or son-in-laws that forbid your husband or wife, whatever, to have a relationship with his parents or her parents. Because when the time comes, according to the Scriptures, they are called to take care of them. And if they don't take care of them, 1 Timothy 5.8 says they've Denied the faith and they're worse than an unbeliever. Don't do that to your spouse. God, give us wisdom. And so we read here this whole thing with David. And notice what happens next in verse 5. It says, Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. And so David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And so after David had secured the safety of his parents, he returned to Adullam. And then he moved his company to the stronghold or, or fortress. And uh, most Bible teachers believe this is Masada. Uh, there at the Dead Sea, about 35 miles southwest of Adullam. The Hebrew word Masuda means fortress or stronghold and can refer to natural planting places in the wilderness. Anybody here gone to Israel? Okay, I'm so jealous. Um, my wife went to Israel, and she has a T-shirt even, you know, like i I climb Masada or something like that. And she rubs it in all the time, you know. But apparently this Masada is now the place where David goes, and it's 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 like a stronghold. It's a fortress, you know. And so you would figure you would kind of figure that he would stay there. First, he's in you know, the land of the Philistines down there on the on the you know, beachland, west coast. And then he goes over to the caves of Adullam. Now he's in the stronghold. And you figure it would be a safe place to stay, a logical place to stay. But notice it says right here in verse 5, Gad said to David, Don't stay there in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. Now that's interesting. You know, now Gad is identified as David's seer in 2 Samuel 24.11. And First Chronicles 21.9, his kind of like his, you know, you know, counselor, so to speak. And then David, you know, here gets his counsel to move from the stronghold into the land of Judah. Now, that's interesting because this probably wasn't what David really wanted to hear. You know, wait a minute, you want me to move from the stronghold, the fortress, into the land of Judah closer to my enemies? But here's the thing, he obeyed. He obeyed anyways. You see, David had to learn to trust God in the midst of danger, not on the other side of danger. And here's the thing that we see the contrast between him and Saul. He heeded the word of God. He heard, heeded the word of Gad, the prophet of God. Unlike Saul, if you think about it, who simply would not heed the word of the Lord through the prophet. Saul resisted the word. David received the word and David lived by faith. He said, okay, if that's what you say, Lord God, I know you're speaking through this prophet. He's a prophet ordained by you and you're telling me now to leave the stronghold, the fortress, a Masada, and go now here to this wilderness. Okay, Lord. You know, I, I, you know, and a lot of times I, I think, remember where there was that bumper sticker, it said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It should be kind of like that, but even stronger. God said it, that settles it. Whatever God says for us to do. And I know sometimes, you know, it's different, you know, like hearing it through someone else. But when you know it's the Lord, and when you have it in the Scriptures, I pray there would never be a hesitancy. You see, we have the first leader, David, verses 1 through 5. And then we have the second so-called leader, Saul, in verses 6 through 19. Because look what happens in verse 6. It says, When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me and there is no one who reveals to me that my son who has made a covenant with the son of Jesse and there is not one of you who is sorry for me. (laughs) That's sad, huh? Or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. We're going to see here the polar opposite aspects of leadership between Saul and David. We're going to see and it's something for us to really, you know, search our hearts for as, uh, you know, ministers of the gospel, as overseers of various ministries, as parents, as people who are trying to lead anybody. Right here we see the style of leadership with Saul is intimidation and manipulation, fear and feelings. There he is kicking it under a tamarisk tree, and he's always like that, right? Under a tree with a spear in his hand. Why does he have a spear in his hand? He's always throwing spears, right? There he is, paranoid of conspiracy and asking for sympathy. David, on the other hand, led not by intimidation, not by manipulation. David really led by illustration. He was a great example of a godly man. That even though he was accused by the king, men were still drawn to him because they knew better than the lies that were being thrown from the throne, right? And that's the thing, and now the Lord has really been speaking to me, you know, be careful that you don't try to lead by intimidation or manipulation. You know, I mean, that has a certain aspect of it, a surface level of leading. But man, you have to make sure ultimately that you're leading by Illustration and really being what you want, you know, your so-called, you know, people to be. I mean, what if all of the congregation gave the tithes the way that I do, or you treated your wife the way that I do, or you read your Bible the way that I do, or you prayed the way that I do, or, or whatever it is, whatever it is, you know, as a leader, we got to know that that's just the way it works. It doesn't matter what you say. It's it's what you do. It's it's how you live. And so when you're when you're thinking of that, what would I want my children to do? What would I would I desire? What's honoring Lord for you? It changes everything. And I, I guess in one sense, I don't think David was kind of thinking that while he's doing it, but I think in the end he was just he just loved the Lord. He just loved the Lord. And I think that's what God's calling us to love the Lord. It's not about position, it's not about being the king. It really isn't. Saul, that's for him. It was all about that position, and that's why when that position was threatened, he was just he was he just lost it because his life was wrapped in that position and not in a relationship with God. And so what ends up happening, man, here we see Saul had a group of 3000 elite men, primarily from his tribe of Benjamin, And so he brings up riches, and he brings up ranks. And I don't know for sure there. Look again in verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamas tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand, and all his servants standing about him. And then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds. Now, I'm not sure about this. You know, I'm not sure if this is Saul offering it to them. Maybe he had already given it to them, riches and ranks, and saying, you guys, man, David didn't do that for you, right? I did. Or maybe he really believes David offered that to them. Either way, he felt it would be something that would draw them riches and ranks. And that shows you what kind of a leader he was. Because if you think that that will draw them, I'm going to give them riches and ranks, then that's what draws you. I'll I'll give them a position. I know they can make some money. That shows you who you are. You know, here we see Saul is just crazy, man. He wonders why they didn't tell him where David was or why they didn't inform him about the fact that Jonathan had made a covenant with David. You know, here we see the king. He's like a crybaby. You know, huh? Wanting sympathy, living in the conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory. NLT says, you're not even sorry for me. Think of it, my own son encouraging him to kill me as he's trying to do this very day. Wait a minute, time out. Who's trying to kill who? (laughs) That is crazy how you can begin to believe your own lies. What a contrast. David simply did what? He just attracted men who came to him, and they came to him to the point of their willingness to risk their life, to lay down their life. What a contrast. For free. (laughs) You know, while Saul there appealed to the worst in men, he used bribes and loyalty to him as a bond. But such bonds will not last, and they will not produce anything good. David Guzik said this. He said, In his fleshly, self-focused world, everything revolved around Saul. He becomes paranoid and whines, And he leads through guilt and accusation. Tragically, you know, the the sad thing is, is that even though we look at this and we see, man, how crazy this is, too many times you'll find sketchy men looking just for this type of opportunity, looking for riches, looking for rank, men with no conviction willing to do the dirty work for the demented because that's what we see next. In verse 9 it says, And then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. And he said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath and Philistine. What kind of leader are we? If you're a scheming leader, then you will produce scheming followers. It's been said Wherever there is a scheming leader, he will have scheming followers, for we reproduce after our own kind. These are people who will do anything to gain the leader's approval and receive his rewards. Doeg was such a man. Doeg was there, remember we saw last week, when David came to Ahimelech, and David did give him the bread and the sword, but there's no evidence that he inquired of the Lord for him, which changes the whole story, because this right here is a heavy Heavy accusation on the part of Doeg. And so we read in verse 11 So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priests who were in Nob, they all came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? And that you had given him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. And so Himelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. You know, Doeg says, Yeah, you know, I was there, man. I, I, I remember the day that, you know, Ahimelech, he, he helped David out. Yeah, your your enemy. And he gave him bread and a sword and he inquired of the Lord for him. Um and so Saul says, okay, get him over here. Get him and his whole house over here. We're going to you know, square this away, right? And so what ends up happening, we read in verse 11, that the king calls for the priest of Himalek and all his father's house. And when they come to him, and here's the thing, I think we see it, Saul doesn't really question him. He doesn't really interrogate or investigate whether or not there was really a conspiracy. Notice he just asks, why did you do it? Why, you know? I mean, obviously we know Saul at this time is just, he's the devil incarnate, right? The Himelech who knew nothing about this whole situation, he just reasons with Saul. He says, wait a minute, man. I've always known David to be a faithful servant. As a matter of fact, he's your son-in-law who does what you ask of him in an honorable way. He says, I didn't inquire of the Lord for him, far be it from me that not the king bring such an accusation against me. You know, but the bottom line is Saul would not listen to the testimony of the priest. Like many of us here, and here's where we have to be careful. A lot of times people just believe what they want to believe. I think a lot of times we are not objective people. We go into things with preconceived ideas and there's not really this fair heart of justice. Let me tell you something. That person, that type of person who just believes what they want to believe because they're a respecter of persons or whatever the case may be, they can never be a leader for God. You know, the rabbis, whenever they would listen, remember that they would do? They would hear with one hand over this ear. Why? Because there's always two sides to a story. Always. As a matter of fact, there's three. There's his, there's hers, and there's God's, right? God's is the best. <laughs> But you have to be fair. Saul here, he had his mind made up. This guy's guilty as charged. And so verse 16, it says, And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also was with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king, they would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, Okay, well, you turn and kill the priests. And so Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys, sheep with the edge of the sword. Think about that. It's crazy, huh? I mean, you know, most of the the commentators I read on this, they said this was the worst thing that Saul did. Adam Clark, he said this is one of the worst acts in the life of Saul. His malice was relentless. His wrath was cruel. John Trapp said a bloody sentence, harshly pronounced, and as rashly executed without any pause or deliberation, without any remorse or regret. He said this was the worst act that Saul ever did. You know, and at first we see that Saul commands his uh, personal guards. These are, it says right there in verse um, 16, verse 17, he said to the guards who stood about him. And so these are, these are his close guards. You know, these are not just the guys on the outskirts. These are his close guards. He commands them to do his dirty work. But praise God, they were unwilling to do such a thing, and rightfully so. And again, this is a lesson for us. This is a quick side note. If your leader, so-called leader, ever commands you to sin, you don't have to, right? As a matter of fact, we saw something similar with Saul in 1 Samuel 14, 41 through 46. Remember when they said, hey, you know, Saul said, okay, who's the one that broke the vow? And it came out to be uh, Jonathan. And so they said, you must die. And everybody says, Saul, what are you talking about, man? He's the one that brought about the victory. And so, you know, they saved his life. And so we see it throughout the scriptures over in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17. When the Pharaoh commanded the midwives to kill the babies, it says that they didn't do it. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. We see it again over in the book of Acts 5, 27 through 29 in the early church where we see the government was commanding them not to preach in the name of Jesus. And so they said, man, whether we should you know, obey God or you, I think it's a pretty simple choice. We will obey God. And so just remember, man, um, you don't have to obey. If your leader, I don't care who it is, commands you to sin. But make sure it's clear in Scripture. Make sure it's not some weird personal <laughs> conviction that you have. Otherwise, you are in rebellion. Right, And so when no Israelite does the dirty work, Saul then turns to Doeg the Edomite. Saul knew he would, right? And Doeg not only kills 85 priests, but then he goes and he strikes the city of Nob with the sword, undoubtedly with Saul's approval, killing men, women, children, nursing infants. Think about that. Oxen, donkeys, sheep, you know, um, you name it, hamsters, they, were, they all died, man. Just everything, fish, I mean, just, just wiped them out, right? And, and, and you know, again, you guys, I, I can't, I, the more I read this, the more I see how the Lord is just saying, this is the way of Jesus, and this is the way of the devil. And there's no middle ground. This is the way of Jesus, follow him. Or you might end up following the devil, right? And that's what Saul is. To me, it's ironic that Saul was reluctant to do this to the enemies of the Lord when he was commanded to do that in 1 Samuel 15, 9. Remember the Lord commanded him to wipe out the Amalekites? He wasn't willing to do it then, but here we see he doesn't even hesitate to annihilate the priests of the Lord and their family in cold blood. Remember, Saul started off good. Look at where he is now. This is why, you know, we have to guard our hearts. And I really encourage you to just stay on fire for the Lord. Stay on target with the Lord. Stay in prayer. Stay in devotion. Stay with the heart of obedience. Man, stay where you need to be lest you drift away, lest you fall away. We don't want anything in between. We want to be room right there in the center of God's will. Because if not... We might find ourselves doing things and selfishly living like, like Saul did. And so what ends up happening in closing? Verse 20, it says, Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. And so David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul... Notice he says, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. By God's grace, one of Ahimelech's sons, this guy named Abiathar, escaped and he fled to David. He told him what happened. After which, it's interesting to me, in verse 22, David assumed full responsibility for lying to Ahimelech and causing the death of his father's house. You know, and just in closing, just a a real quick side note here. You've got to almost admire the way that David doesn't do what so many of us so easily do, and that is blame others for the things that we have done. You know, he groans and he moans, yes, but he owns his own sin. Even when he could have very easily just focused on Doeg or focused on Saul. You know, he you know he makes the connection, which I think, to me, leads us to a heart of Acts 13.22. I've raised up David, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. I'm telling you this, man. The way of Adam, the way of man is just not to own up to the responsibilities that we have in certain things. Yeah, it wasn't all David's fault. You know, and we'll run with that. Well, it's not all my fault. But do you have anything to do with this? Is there a a plank in your own eye? David here assumes responsibility, and I think that that's where we need to be, you guys. Lord, you know, search my heart and show me, God, because I can't see. And then when you do... You know, just own up to it. When you read the Bible, you actually find that it took many different men and many years of disobedience for such a tragedy as this. It wasn't just David's fault. But he owned up to his part of it. But here's this this whole thing. Because think about this for a second. Eighty-five priests slaughtered. And then, you know, they go to the city of Nob and all these innocent people. Men and women and children, and nursing infants, all the animals, and you're like, what a terrible, 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 terrible thing. But here's the thing, how did that happen? Why did that happen? You know one thing that's really interesting? It wasn't just David. It wasn't just Doeg. It wasn't just Saul. Did you know that it went back to Hophni and Phinehas, and Eli, way back early in First Samuel chapter 2, remember we read about their sins? The way that these guys were sleeping with the women, the way that these guys were pulling out the sacrifices from you know, the, the people that they were offering to God, the way that they were wicked, they were wicked men. And it didn't happen right away, but eventually their sin, their sin affected others in such a way and you know, and I think that a lot of times we're like, "Man, I'm, I'm cool," because even though you know I, I, I I'm doing what I'm doing, man, you know, I'm, I'm still alive and things are kind of cool. But remember this: that whatever you sow, that you will also reap. And what we find right here is that, to me, you know, I thank God for His grace. I thank God for the cross. And I and I and I and I do embrace the freedom and forgiveness that I have in Jesus Christ. I really do, but I'm seeing more and more how my sin affects others in such an awful way. And here we see now way down the lower, the, the the line: Eli's sin and Hophni's sin and Phinehas' sin. It's all part of the prophecy. God said, because of what you've done, this is what's going to happen to your descendants. Eventually, even Abiathar gets wiped out while he gets removed from the priesthood because although he's faithful with David all his years, he is a- until the time of Adonijah. Adonijah? Um, what's the, Solomon's brother? What's his name? Adonijah? Or Anyways, anyways when Solomon was going to be, be you know, king, this guy raised himself up. Abiathar joined him. And so Solomon kicked him out of the priesthood. It's all part of sowing and reaping, you guys. And so we find here a lesson for us in so many ways. Again, if you want to you know, get blessed, here's another psalm you might want to read, Psalm 52. That's that whole time when Doeg did what he did. David wrote a psalm about it. And so let's close with this. I'm going to give you guys just a few things in closing, just, uh, there's so much application. But number one, let's gather around godly leaders, especially the Lord himself, you guys. I want to encourage you to gather around him. Let's know that even though we're a motley crew, um, he can make us mighty men and women of valor. Number two, let's honor our parents. Let's honor our parents. If you have parents still, And I encourage you to take care of them as they get older. Number three, let's listen to God's word and his counselors who, you know, they give his word. Even when it goes against what we might naturally do, we need to live supernaturally. Number four, let's lead with our lives more than our lips. Let's lead by example as David did and not as Saul, who led selfishly, asking for sympathy, offering riches and ranks. Saul led to death, David led to life. Number five, do not submit to commands of sin. Number six, admit when you've sinned. And then number seven, flee to the Son of David, who will be crowned king, king soon and very soon. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know I closed my Bible and you were like, oh, cool. But um, let me just read one verse to you, right? Let's go back to verse 23, guys, because I I love you guys. I, this, I'm so excited what God's doing. Look at verse 23. And let's just kind of say that Jesus is kind of saying this to us, okay? Stay with me. Do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, you know? But notice he says, with me you shall be safe." I love that. And I think the Lord is actually trying to tell us that, you know? You know, the Lord says, stay with me. You know, the devil's after you primarily because he hates me. But I tell you what, just stay with me. Stay with me, and and you're going to be safe. It's interesting, you guys. What are the three offices that Jesus had? You guys know? Prophet, priest, and king. And here's David now that uh, this guy comes to him, Abiathar, and he's got the prophet, he's got the priest, and they've got the king. But not yet, huh? It hasn't happened yet. Eventually, King Jesus. And, And I... More than ever, and we got to pray for our election and you guys vote as the Lord leads you, man. But more than ever before in my life, I am so wanting Jesus as my president, man, as my king. Isn't that going to be a cool day? Oh, man, I cannot wait. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us, uh, Lord, this time to study your word so much here. And I know I just kind of race through it, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that whatever it is that needs to stick. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel, El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.